Mark chapter 11. This is one of those teachings that if time would allow, it would be great to do the next few chapters in one setting. But at 8 o'clock, I have people looking at me from those windows in the foyer, which means I need to be done, so we're not allowed to do that. Because this is why, please remember, we're in the final week of Christ's life on this earth. You know, at the beginning of Mark chapter 11 is the triumphant entry, which we call Palm Sunday. He's in the final week of his ministry on this earth. And what's happening this week is just packed full of details. I mean, there's chapters devoted just to these final weeks. And what you start seeing here starting tonight in verse 27 is Jesus being questioned. And I've heard this by many teachers, and I wish I could give you credit to the first teacher I heard say this, but I don't remember the first one I did. They said, remember what Jesus is. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And if you remember correctly from the Passover lamb story in the book of Exodus, that the Passover lamb would be brought in, and the Passover lamb would then be examined to make sure there was no defect or any problems with the Passover lamb because God wanted the perfect sacrifice. And I've heard so many teachers say that this final week of Christ's life is a week of examination. The Pharisees are going to ask him questions. The Herodians are going to ask him questions. The scribes are going to ask her questions. And then what happens is this. If you take a look at verse 34, look how verse 34 of chapter 12 ends. But after that, no one dared question him. He passes all the tests. There's no defect. There's no problem. There's no problem theologically with him. He is the perfect sacrifice, which then takes us into his death on the cross. So this is a week of questioning, and I want you to keep in the back of your mind that idea of the Passover lamb from the book of Exodus being examined for defects, and this is what it is, just question after question after question, and how Jesus just so expertly, expertly handles all these questions. It is just absolutely amazing. If you are into anything of apologetics, if you're into anything of sharing your faith, and I hope you have that heart to see souls get saved, just the way he handles these difficult situations, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't get upset, he doesn't battle them. It's just so spirit-led eloquently how he deals with it. And let's just jump right into it. Verse 27 of Mark 11. It says, then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if they say from men, they feared the people, for all the counted John had been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, don't look at Jesus as just trying to be kind of like a little first grader here. You know, fine, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. No. This is one of the things that Christ does. I heard a teaching recently. They counted it up. They said in the book of Luke, there's at least 10 times that somebody asks Christ a question, and Christ responds by asking them a question. That is kind of what he does. It's such a great technique. It really is. And I've told you before, I use that a lot. People will come in maybe for counseling, and they'll say, I got this situation. I don't know how to handle it. And I'll say, what's the situation? There's the first question. They tell me the situation. And then they, and I say, well, what do you think you should do? There's the second question. Nine times out of ten, they already know what to do. Just have them start thinking. Just have them start thinking. You know, somebody comes up and says, I don't believe the Bible is true. Why do you believe that? Put it back on. Tell me, tell me, what's these contradictions you see in there? I have a hard time believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, why is that? 
It's amazing how just asking a question to make them think so all of a sudden takes the situation to a deeper level. And you see Jesus doing this repeatedly, repeatedly. Now, but before I can get into that, I have to take you back to verse 27. He's in the temple. Okay, rewind the clock to verse 15. He just cleansed the temple. And he had enough guts to go right back into it. Please remember, we're at the final week of his life. So these are all events that are happening just right after each other, day after day after day. He cleanses the temple in 15. And then verse 18, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all of his people were astonished at his teaching. And he comes right back in verse 27, walking in the temple. One of my favorite psalms. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Doesn't say that I'm not going to be afraid because the reality is I'm going to face fear in this life. So whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. And he had enough guts to go right back into that temple. That's that definition of boldness, the absence of fear. And I tell you, to really be a light for the Lord, you need to pray for love for the lost and pray for boldness. If you look back in Acts chapter 4, when the early church first fought their first, um, I guess, attacks against them, the first persecution, they got together and as a group of people, they prayed for boldness. And I think we're missing that a lot as believers. Sometimes we need to walk right back into the temple and start the conversation again. It says in the other gospel accounts that he was actually going back and preaching and teaching in the temple. No fear. No fear in any way whatsoever. So they come and they question him. And that question in verse 28 in the other gospel accounts, it uses the words that they confronted him. They're not asking him because they really care. They're not asking him because they want to know more. They're trying to pick a fight and an argument. And they want to know his authority. Why? Because their authority is being challenged. They are the religious leaders of the day. They have all the power. They're at their home court, the temple. And their authority is being challenged. Their kingdom is falling apart. It is amazing, amazing what will rile up a person when their kingdom is being challenged. It is. When they got their little system all set up and somebody comes in and changes their little system, it just completely, utterly riles them up. You've seen it at work. There's always the fear of who's going to get the promotion. There's the fear of who's going to get more pay. There's the fear of the job change. Why? Because we have our little kingdom set up and we don't want anybody to mess up or be challenged in it. But now when your belief system is being challenged, that's even deeper. This is what I've come to the conclusion with, especially when you start witnessing to somebody that has a very ingrained belief system. And I'm talking about it's not only their belief system, it's also how they were raised. You start dealing that when you deal with Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, that you're not just talking about the religious choice, you're talking about their entire system of how they were raised. I mean, for a lot of times, people in America, we don't have that. You may have grown up going to the Presbyterian church, then you went to the Methodist church, then you went to the Lutheran church, then you had a little Baptist thing for a while, then you settled at non-denominational. So if somebody comes up and wants to talk about this or that, it doesn't really rile you up too much. But when you were born and raised and you are a Muslim, you are a Hindu, you are a Buddhist, and it's not just your religious system, it's your entire life, and you come to them and you start telling them about their belief system and you start putting dents in their armor, you start to see a lot of anger. Because their whole world, their whole kingdom is being challenged. And the human reaction to that, generally speaking, is fear and anger. 
And that's what you see going on here to the point that these priests and scribes and elders are so upset that the only way to deal with this is to kill him. That's what it's building up to, is to kill him. So this is not Jesus dodging the question, but the reality is this. Who's John the Baptist to you? Because if you're not going to accept John the Baptist, you're not going to accept me. And what a great question. Can't you see them in verse 31 calling a huddle? That's what we call it at our house, Irvin house, house. If I need to talk to the boys, I'll say, okay, boys, huddle. And we get together like a little huddle. We figure it out. I mean, I just see these, these spiritual bigwigs stepping away from Jesus and huddling up and then talking amongst themselves, saying, what do we say? So if we say John's from God, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say John wasn't from God, then everybody's going to be upset at us because they all love John. And so I have the best answer in the world, 33. We do not know. Think that through for a second. These are the cream of the crop of Judaism at this time. These are the priests. These are the scribes. This is everybody. It doesn't say that the, the high priest was there, but the assumption is that maybe the high priest was there and the way the priesthood was set up at the time, you had the high priest, and then you had chief priests that were over areas. The point was you had a lot of big wigs at this point. And their great response is, we do not know. Now, I want to let you know, there's two answers I absolutely hate in life. If I ask somebody why they do something and their response is either I don't know or because, that drives me completely, utterly crazy. To the point that sometimes I've gotten so in the flesh that I'll say this, you're telling me that right now there's not a single thought going through your brain on why you did what you just did. I don't know. You don't know. I got to be done now because I'm getting upset, see? So for the religious leaders of the day that are supposed to be the smart ones, for them to look and say, we do not know. I just hear this audible gasp from the crowd. And Jesus just simply says, well, then neither will I tell you. Because why? If you're not going to accept John, why would you accept me? It's amazing to stop and see the ignorance of man. So please note, when it comes to now, this is what I see out of this. I see a few things, and I'm going to just take it back to sharing your faith. Number one. You can't be afraid. You're going to be afraid. But there needs to be a boldness there of saying, Lord, this is so important. So therefore, I'm going to walk right back into the temple like Jesus did in Psalm 56.3. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Number two, I'm going to realize this, that when I start sharing the gospel with somebody, I am challenging their worldview. I am challenging their belief system. I am challenging everything they've built their little kingdom on. And sometimes the response to that is fear and anger. Even though I'm giving them the words of life for salvation, their response is, they're ticked at me because I'm coming in a rock in their world. And lastly, the ignorance of man. We do not know. Mankind is sometimes perfectly content of being ignorant about spiritual things. And I've asked people, do you not care that you do not know where you're going to go when you die? Do you not care that you don't have an understanding of what happens after this life? The book of Hebrews says there's the fear of death. I don't know. We don't know. They want to walk in ignorance. And that's a sad, sad part about this. So that's the first part here. This is our, our Passover lamb being questioned. 
What a great response there, and what a great, great attitude to have, and we can learn so much from this as well. This is not anger. This is not frustration. This is not bitterness. This is meeting them where they're at and taking them and making them think. What a great point that is. Any quick comments about anything with this or questions, I should say, real quick before we head on? Bethany. How do current-day Jews handle this? I can only give you the answer that I, uh, I've spoke to Ephraim about. If you guys remember Ephraim, he's come out here to our church a couple of times to share with us about the Passover. Uh, he taught about the feast. He's actually coming out again next spring. He's a missionary over in Israel. He's Jewish, and I, he, I take all my Jewish questions to him. So I ask him, what do present-day Jews think? And his response is, they don't care. They just, he says, there is such an apathy over in Israel that they just don't care about these things. Because I'll go over and ask him and say, hey, I read this article about the ashes of the red heifer. Is there any truth to that? He goes, yeah, no one cares over here. I read this article where they're trying to really get the temple rebuilt. He goes, yeah, it's only the Christians in the West that care about the temple rebuilt. The Jews over here just don't care. Their, their religion over there is not so much a religion. They're just Jewish in the idea that that is their country. You do have certain Jews that are very passionate, maybe Orthodox, etc. But the majority of the people over there that are Jewish, they really just don't seem to care too much. That's what he says. There's such an apathy over there. So keep them in prayer. And that's why the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Eventually their eyes are going to get opened. And that's what I, every time I pray for them, it's like, okay, Lord, when their eyes get open, it's amazing. But the hearts are so hard over there. They really just are so hard. Anybody else have any questions here about anything? Go on. Okay. Now, he talks to them about in a parable. Verse 1, chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. We're going to stop right there. Please remember the idea of parables. It takes us back to Mark chapter 4. And what he says in Mark chapter 4 about parables is this. Those who want to get it will get it. Those who don't want to get it won't get it. That's why he speaks to them in parables. It's kind of a code. It's kind of a riddle. It's not that he's keeping information. But for those that want to get it, they're going to get it. And those that don't want to get it, they won't. So that's why he's speaking to them in this way right here. Because if you want to put the energy and effort into it, you're going to figure out what he says. And so he goes through this parable. So let's read the parable, come back and break it down. We've got some points about this. Verse 1. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. Again he sent another, and then him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared multitudes, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, let's talk about this parable a little bit here. Let's break it down. First thing first, the man, verse 1, the man is God. What did God do? He planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine, built a tower. That vineyard is the idea of Israel from the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah chapter 5. Israel is, is God's prized vine. What is the goal here of the prized vine? To produce fruit, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Who are the vine dressers? 
the farmers, the people who are supposed to take care of it. This had been the leadership. This had been the people of the day. So what happens is God now comes and says, hey, I'm looking for some fruit. So he sends a servant. Who are the servants? The servants would be the prophets, the messengers. And look at all the things that happened to them. Sent away empty-handed. They're beat. Eventually they're killed. So now they send the son. Who's the son? The son is Jesus. And what do they do to Jesus? Verse 8, they took him, killed him, cast him out of the vineyard. So the question comes up in verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's a probing question. And the other gospel accounts, the question is stopped at that moment, waiting for the people to respond. And the other gospel accounts, the people respond, and they give the answer. Destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's exactly what's going to happen. You know, in just a few short years after this, Israel's temple is destroyed, the Jews are scattered, the gospel's going to the Gentiles. Jesus is completely rejected, hence verses 10 and 11, the stone which the builders rejected to become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was rejected. The most important stone, the chief cornerstone, that foundational stone, is completely, utterly cast away. Now, we got the understanding of what this parable is. This is a pretty straightforward one to follow. Now we have to get the application of it. Let's start with this idea of the chief cornerstone first. I have this tendency, I like to do this sometimes when I'm talking to somebody that's coming in maybe for counseling and they're admitting that spiritually they're not as strong as they should be. So I say, okay, I want to make, have you make two lists. Number one, I want you to put in order the things that are supposed to be most important to you. And they all know what to put number one. What do you put number one? Jesus, right? That's, we know that. Everybody knows the list. Jesus is supposed to be number one. My spouse is supposed to be number two. My kids are supposed to be number three. And then you can get into ministry and other things like that. We know how it's supposed to go. So they make that list and almost everybody gets the list right because they're so trained to answer that. So then I say, okay, I want you to make another list now. Now make an honest list. What honestly is the most important thing in your life? And how are we going to judge what's the most important thing in your life? What do you think about the most? What do you spend your money on the most? What do you daydream about the most? What are you most passionate about? And at that point, everyone stops and has to honestly admit that it's probably not Jesus Christ. Sad to say some people put work. Work. Part of the curse, you want to make that the most important thing in your life? A hobby? A project? A vacation? No, what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be verse 10, the chief cornerstone. There's a reason why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is no other foundation that anyone can lay other than the foundation of Jesus Christ. Christ has to be the foundation. And to get this point across, you hear me say this a lot out here. If God says the verse once, you know it's important. If he says the verse twice, you better be paying attention. If he says the verse three times, you better be stopping and paying attention. This verse about Christ being the chief cornerstone is mentioned six times in the Bible. Six times. You have the initial, initial reference back in Psalm 118. Then it's in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, Acts 4, and 1 Peter chapter 2. Six times the exact same verse is mentioned in the Bible. I think God is trying to make a point. Can you go with me to the one reference? Acts chapter 4, please. Acts 4.
Acts chapter 4. Why is Christ supposed to be the chief cornerstone? A couple quick verses. Acts 4 verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by your builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you guys are the Wednesday nighters. You're the ones that really love Christ, all right? So you know this. Verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why he's the chief cornerstone. If we truly believe verse 12, if we truly believe verse 12, the idea of ecumenicalism goes completely, utterly out the window. I can't look at my, my Hindu friends and say, well, you know what? You, you, you have a desire for God, and your desire for God is coming in a different form and different verbiage than mine, but I'm just thankful that you're finding your peace. I can't do that. I, I can't look at an atheist and say, you know what? I have to respect what you believe because you have obviously come to this conclusion and who am I to come and tell you that you're wrong? Because if I really believe verse 12, that means I'm really saying probably 75% of the world is not saved. That's a pretty big statement. That means whole countries whole countries like India, Indonesia, Yemen, Somalia that are so focused on being a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. We were talking at a Bible study, and I can't remember which Bible study it was. We were talking about how when the rapture happens, that we have this assumption that the world is going to fall apart, and the world is going to fall apart in some ways. There are certain countries that aren't going to be rocked that hard by the rapture, folks, because 90-plus percent of them aren't saved. Their leadership is going to stay. Their armed forces are going to stay. Their machinery is going to stay because they're not being taken away. They don't believe that the salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. If I really believe that Christ is the chief cornerstone, that's why it's so vitally important. That's why when Jesus said, if you're not going to accept John, you can't accept me. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote about this. He says this, the Son, meaning Jesus, was the final messenger. There would be no other. Either they would accept the message of the Son or face certain judgment. If you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further message. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. That's the whole point. If you say no to Jesus, you're saying no to everything. That's why that verse is mentioned six times in the Bible, is to make sure that we understand that is the chief cornerstone, the foundation of everything. Now, we get this in practicality of life. Imagine you're getting a chance to build your, I don't know, dream home. And maybe you have this passion for huge picture windows. I think of huge picture windows and I think somebody's got to wash those things. But maybe you've got a passion for huge picture windows and you're so excited about your huge picture windows so you go up to your contractor and you say, I have, you have no idea how excited I am about these windows. And the contractor says, yeah, it's going to be beautiful. No contractor, you don't understand. I want you to start with the windows. Put them in first. 
That's ridiculous. No, I can't do that. Okay, well, I'm really excited about my roof. Can you start with the roof? No. What's the first thing you do? You do the ugly, dirty job of digging. And then you do the ugly, dirty job of putting forms in and concrete. And what do you do? You lay the foundation. And then you get to the pretty windows and to the pretty roof lines and all that other type of stuff. The world wants the pretty windows and roof lines without the dirty work. And you've got to lay the foundation of Christ. So I'm telling you right now, if you have somebody who's not saved, the final foundation has to be laid before anything else happens. It has to be the chief cornerstone. It absolutely has to be. A couple quick points on this before I move on. I find it fascinating that in Mark chapter 12, they're quoting Psalm 118, verses 10 and 11 there, the stone which the builders rejected to become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jump back one chapter, please, to Mark 9 and 10. Hosanna, blessed he is comes in the name of the Lord. One chapter earlier, guess what? The people were quoting the exact same psalm. Psalm 118. That psalm has Christ's triumphant entry in it. Then it also has Christ's rejection in it. Same psalm, same thing, two chapters apart from each other, one being used to glorify him and the other one Christ saying, this is why you guys are rejecting me. Boy, oh boy, human beings are fickle, fickle people, folks. It's a dangerous thing to be a human. Good thing we have a Savior when it comes to Christ. I got a couple final points here I want to make. Anybody got any quick uh, questions about any of this before we get to the final things here? All righty. Five things came out of this parable that I want to share with you to finish up with. Parable, once again, is pretty straightforward on its own. I, I want you to see what I see with this. First thing I see, a man planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, verse 1, built a tower. God did all this work. Took me to Romans chapter 9, 21. You don't need to turn there. It says, does not the potter have power over the clay? I am God's creation. He created me, and then he saved me. So he created me. And then when he saved me, he says that he bought me at a price. Did you ever think that through? 1 Corinthians 6, I am bought at a price. So I am made by God and I am purchased by God. I am doubly owned by God. Can you imagine having to buy something that you made yourself? Think that through for a second. You put the time, energy, sweat, effort into building it. I don't know what it is. You built the most beautiful piece of furniture ever. You build it. And you say, that's mine. Someone says, no, sorry, you have to buy it. What do you mean you have to buy it? I build it. That's my sweat. That's my blood. That's my tears. That's everything. I, build, I know you build it, but now you have to buy it. That's exactly what God did. He built me, and then he bought me. I am doubly owned by God, so therefore, when I look at verse 1, he's planted, he's set the hedge, he's done everything. When I learn that, you learn not to fight God's will so much. You just trust the sovereignty of God. Because if I am built by him and I'm bought by him, then that means whatever comes into my life is coming in through him. And in the sovereignty of God, I have to trust it. It doesn't mean I like everything. Please remember this phrase. I don't enjoy everything that happens in my life, but I have joy in everything. There's a huge difference. I don't enjoy it, but I take joy in it because God is good. So if you're sitting here tonight and you have life issues going on and you're really struggling with whys and you're kind of bucking the system here a little bit and you want to have a little bit of a fight with God on why, 
If you're here tonight and you're saved, you're doubly owned by him, and you have to trust that. And does not the potter have power over the clay? He has built me, he has formed me, I am his. You know, Francis Chan has this great example he does in a message where he takes this little Play-Doh character and he forms it and he makes it and he sets it right on the stage and he steps away from it. And he does this long, elaborate thing of the Play-Doh character now has free will. And you sit there and you just laugh. You're looking at this little Play-Doh character that he made. I am made out of the dust of the earth. And for me to stop and think that I have any power or authority in any way whatsoever, the Bible says that my very breath is in his hands. He could take me right now if he wants to. Oh, what a silly thought. So, God has placed me. I am his. Second thing that you see, what does God want? Verse 2. He just wants fruit. He might receive some of the fruit. So I am doubly purchased by him. And he says, hey, James, I want you to be fruitful. Can you go with me to John 15, please? John 15. So I'm bought by him, I'm created by him, and he wants fruit from me. How straightforward is this? John 15, start in verse 1 with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask what you desire and shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. I have noticed this. People that claim to be Christians that walk around very empty, it's because they're not bearing fruit. They forget that they are created by God, purchased by God, with the goal of bearing fruit. And so since they're not bearing fruit for the Lord, they're not really living up to any spiritual potential and there's really an emptiness in their life. The most fulfilled I feel in life is when I'm out there doing something for eternity. Now I forget that and my flesh says, James, you would really have a lot of fun doing this. But in reality, if I can really stop and think clearly, the most fulfillment I have in life is when I'm spiritually doing something for the Lord. Because why? He has planted me, he's created me, and he's asking for fruit. Now, point number three. He's asking for fruit, and now we get into the subject of ministry. You have this list of all these servants and messengers that he sent to them. Take a look at the first one. Verse 3, they took and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Point number three, some ministry feels completely, utterly empty. It just does. I got saved in 93, started doing, um, teaching Sunday school and nursery uh, you know, a couple years after that, and then really started getting into ministry. Started a Bible study up in, my, in our home in 96, um, became the assistant out here in 97, and then uh, took over in 2000. So for the last 20 plus years, I've been doing ministry. And I'm telling you right now, there are some seasons where it just feels empty. And I look at this and I realize that's completely biblical. I'm reading the book of Jeremiah right now. Big book, 52 chapters. If you're really having a joyous season in life and God is just moving mountains, go read Jeremiah and I'll bring you back down to the emptiness of life. This man ministers for about 40 plus years and as best as we can tell, has no fruit. No fruit at all. 
so bad that he wants to quit halfway through the book of Jeremiah. And he says, I'm done preaching. And then he says, I can't because the fire burns within me. If you're here tonight and you're a season of ministry and this season feels very, very empty, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. You could be the messenger, servant that's sent, and you feel a little beat up, verse 3, and you feel empty. And that may be exactly where God wants you. Jeremiah had seasons of emptiness. Um, Elijah had seasons of emptiness. David had seasons of emptiness. We just taught last week in one of our small group studies, Peter had a season of emptiness, and he went back to fishing. There's going to be seasons of emptiness, folks. Stay focused on the Lord, though. Next one. Not only some seasons of emptiness, some seasons of ministry actually hurt. Verse 4, they threw stones, wounded him in the head, sent him away shamefully treated, sent another, killed, beating, killing. Some ministry hurts. It hurts to open up and share your gospel with somebody. Sure, you may be disliked at work, you may be disliked by family members, you may be mocked in certain places of the world, your life is literally at stake. I always say ministry is not for the faint-hearted and ministry is not for the thin-skinned. And that's maybe why you're sitting here tonight saying, this is why I'm not in the ministry. Hey, guess what? You are. Because the Bible says that anybody that's born again and saved is a minister. We use that term as a pastor. That's not the biblical definition of a minister. A minister means to serve, and you've all been called to be in the ministry. Sometimes it's empty, and sometimes it hurts. Physically, spiritually, and emotionally. If you're in a season of ministry right now and you're like, this hurts, then you may be right where God wants you. Just keep being faithful. And our last point, God is justified in judging. We don't like to think about this. But the reality is, look how patient he was. Verse 3, he sent a messenger Verse 4, sends another servant. Verse 5, sends another servant. Verse 6, sends his only son. Only son. God is justified in all judgment because he is God that has created us and he knows us and he's created us for a purpose, for his glory. And if that purpose is rejected, as it says in verse 10, judgment is allowed to come. Which reminds me of 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. One more time. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It says in the book of Ezekiel, God says to the non-believers, he says, repent, repent, turn from your evil way. Why should I have any joy in the death of the wicked? Anytime I see people present God as this God that's happy to send people to hell and judge people, then they're not understanding the Bible in any way whatsoever. We're seeing his faithfulness. We're seeing his his promise of patience here. He wants all to come to repentance. Ezekiel says, turn from your evil ways and be saved. He's pleading with us through Christ. He doesn't want to. But what happens is this. Look back at verse 10 one more time. The stone which the builders rejected. Who rejected? They rejected. Judgment comes. That's the fairness and the justice of God. So the last five points one more time. God uh, planted us. God planted us. We're his. God wants fruit from us. Some ministry feels empty. Some ministry hurts. But God is justified in all his judgment and he's patient as he waits to do it. 
A lot of good stuff here in these passages. And if time would allow, I would love to go right back to verse 13, right to the next question. But time doesn't allow us to do it. So we got another question in verses 13 through 17. Then we got another question in 18. Then we got another question in 28. Oh, man. It's just wonderful stuff, and I can't wait next Wednesday to get into it. Good, good stuff here. Hey, any final uh, questions about anything here before we close you guys out with a word of prayer and let you guys go? We good? Okay. Hey, would you guys stand with me, please? Good to be here tonight to glorify you in song, glorify you in fellowship. Lord, help us to take this and truly make you the chief cornerstone of our life to go out there and live for you. And if there's someone here tonight that's feeling empty in ministry, let them be faithful even in those dark times. If there's someone out here that's hurt, Lord, there's hurting in ministry, encourage them and uplift them. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for buying us. Thank you for us getting to serve you. And Lord, I want to pray for the Rosebrock family, the Bartley family, and the Rudder family, that the God of comfort be with them in all ways and all things. May your truth and gospel be presented at all those times when the family gets together for your glory. You are a good God, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.